tip over. No, I'm just messing with you. You know, I, I, have, a fr- I have a friend who uh, he likes, well, he sings at the church I was at, and he does a song. It's kind of a fun song about Don't Sit in My Pew. I don't know if you've ever heard that song. And me and Karen like that one about the Mississippi squirrel. We like that one as far as a fun song. Uh, if you would, please turn your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. And I was reading some commentary on Nehemiah, trying to get the theme of the book and just different things that commentary might give you. And they made the comment that it used to be called Ezra 2, like Ezra 1, Ezra 2, because apparently Ezra wrote this book as Ezra 1 and 2, but, they, but since it's been called Nehemiah because it is based off maybe some memoirs that Nehemiah, and he's always talking about himself in the first person. So that's what commentary says. I don't know. All I know is my Bible says this is the book of Nehemiah, and that's where we're going to land. And, of course, uh, this is some commentary-type stuff. But during this, uh, this book of Nehemiah, obviously it is during a time when Israel has been scattered God, for lack of words, has judged them for their idolatry and their disobedience to God. And so God has kind of dispersed them throughout the land, not only to be under perhaps pagan kings, uh, pagan governments, but some are just kind of wandering out there. Some of them are still kind of looking around the rubble left there there in Jerusalem when they were taken over and, and basically punished for their disobedience to God. And so what I like about this book of Nehemiah, uh, reading it and just studying it and things is, Nehemiah is going to paint a picture here. Before we're done with the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is, is there in that pagan setting. He's a cupbearer for a king. Of course, at that time, that would have been someone very trusted for, for any king, let alone a pagan king, because that means he takes a sip of everything before the king does, and he would die first. So he was a very trusted person. And, and you can think about Daniel, kind of the same story. He became trusted. And, then, and Daniel and Ezra... Uh, during Esther and during this time of Nehemiah, that's all that during that contemporary time, they were all contemporaries to each other. But I like the book of Nehemiah because it kind of paints a picture of how God moves in a person's heart uh, because he loves God, he loves God's people, and God basically gives him a vision. God gives him a, a task to do, to, to shore up, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem so they can come and worship God again. And, of course, I know this is Old Testament. I know this is the nation Israel. But what we'll be able to do from this book is glean from it some things either we already are doing to maybe shore up and keep things strong or, or to rebuild. Um, and, by the way, that is not my uh, political statement, build back better or whatever it might be. It just, you know, rebuild. Uh, they're going to uh, face enemies. They're going to face rumors. They're going to face a lot of stuff. They're going to lose morale. They're going to have to arm up and and protect one another. We're going to see a lot of things here that that creates a spirit, in my mind, of just unity. Unity, direction, uh, vision. And so what we'll see in Nehemiah is that during this time of him starting out this narrative that he's a cupbearer for the king, a pagan king, trusted cupbearer, he runs into some relatives that come in to his area, and he asks him, he says, how's the people doing? He's concerned about his people and God's honor. And the reason God can move him, we'll see here in a little bit, the reason God can move him 
to a visionary, to a task, is because he gets information about how the brothers are doing from credible sources, okay? You and I live in a culture today where um, if you get a newspaper, Inola still has an Inola Independent, you can get a newspaper and read things. Uh, obviously, we can find things on internet, news, local, cable, all kinds. Of, there's all kinds of sources for us to get information about our culture. There's even books written about the church, the church declining, the church this, the church surveying that. And, and, and I don't have a problem with all that, but what we're going to find out is Nehemiah will not be getting this vision, this task that God's put on his heart just because he read the most trendy book or went to the most trendy website about God's people. He hears it from his own relatives, a credible resource. This is what's happening. The ones that aren't under pagan rule, the ones that aren't scattered or killed, they're just kind of wandering. They're wandering around the rubble of Jerusalem and in a sad state. And from that credible source, then he comes to God. He doesn't try to solve it himself. He doesn't try to um, reinvent the wheel. He gets down on his knees and he begins to pray, God, what are we going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? These are your people. It's about your glory. It's about what you promised God's people. And that's what I like about Nehemiah is it, it, it paints a picture of a man who just cares enough about God's people that he comes to God and God gives him a task and he trusts God to provide every resource he needs. By the way, we'll find out from a pagan king to pay for it all. Now, I'm not saying therefore there's an application there. Now, when I started Simple Southern Baptist Church, we met at the Owasa Community Center. Owasa is very church friendly and I know Sand Springs is too. And we would rent a room that was what, about 35 by 40? And there was about 12 or 15 of us. And it cost us $25 an hour to rent that room. We just had to clean up after ourselves and stuff. So for $50 a week, we had a room. And what I told the people, I said, you think about it. I said, this secular uh, government in Owasso has allowed us to come in here. I said, and someone says, well, what? Because there's a bigger room. Well, what if over in that room, a Muslim group wanted to start a church over there? I said, well, then they, they would have that right here in America, wouldn't they? And I said, our message was just have to compete with them. I said, I'm not saying I would like it. You know, I want them to join the church. But, you know, because you live in that. But, but, the, but what I told them is I said, our local government is allowing us to be here. And eventually, the guy that ran the center, he liked what we were doing because sometimes our church was able to help people that he found out at the senior adult center pay maybe for a funeral maybe pay, like literally for a funeral, like a casket-type funeral. We would have enough funds because everything else was low cost, you know, on the building, and me and the other guy. So we would also do stuff like maybe buy the headstone for a senior adult because their family can't afford it or whatever it may be. So he liked that so much that he said, I've created this program here for churches or VFWs or everybody. If they'll become a partner with the community center, then whatever they're renting the room for, it's scheduled and it's free. I was okay, what's the partner all about? Well, occasionally there might be someone up here doing a birthday party in that room and one of your members are going to have to be up here just to open it up for them so that way an employee doesn't have to. And we did that for a little while. And eventually a bigger church did move over and over here and we became partners with them where they had a lot of volunteers that could do that. 
but yet we would help them clean up. And it didn't cost us a penny to have a place to worship that was handicap access, everything. And I know it's not quite the application, but the point is, is that if someone prays long enough, if God has opened a door for you to do a task we're going to see in Nehemiah, God will provide a resource, whether it's out of our pockets or someone else's pockets, that kind of resources. And what I like about the book of Nehemiah is it paints a picture of uniting and encouraging and giving direction and vision to God's people. And the Bible says in Proverbs, you know, where there's no vision, the people perish. Now, I don't think that necessarily means I've got to have an A, B, C, and a 1, 2, 3, and that's what we do. We'll be, you know, kind of vision statement. But at the same time, while I'm here for a short period of time up front, I'm going to be thinking about your giftedness, your talents, your resources. And we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. And therefore, create some kind of vision statement, some kind of vision direction. Because listen, uh, I can come here every Sunday and just preach to you, and, and I'm going to do that. But, but we need some kind of, we're going to have to create some kind of structure. The committee asked me, what's four things our church is going to need to, to function? Well, we've got to have unity. Got to have unity, right? I mean, at least we unite on one thing, and that is the essentials, right? We, we unite on the gospel and the essentials. But we also need direction, but we also need fellowship. And then in the midst of that is cooperation and accountability. Well, if we're not united about specific things, and if we're not looking to God's word for direction, then all we have is a fellowship and maybe a little bit of accountability. We may as well just open up a, a social club and have pickleball back there I mean, because we don't need accountability. Or, so the point is, is through this book of Nehemiah, not that the vision will be built off this other than the concepts of this unity, supporting one another, those concepts that are biblical. We're going to look at those things. And then from that, uh, we'll put together something that works for all of us. And, and so um, that way we got some kind of direction or, or uh, we was talking about it at lunch today. Well, what if I die tomorrow? I mean, can you still function? Well, I think the way you're functioning now, you can. But I've been in churches, I mean, the little church I just left, they just really didn't know what to do. I had to sit down with them, get a moderator, tell them that's how we do it. We've got to get a moderator because you're going to have business. I helped them put together a committee of three to five people. I gave them some processes. I said, that's not in granite, but it gives you some rules. I said, I'm there as a consult. I said, but don't ask me if I'm supposed to hire this guy because I ain't going to tell you. It could be your pastor. But if you have a question, I'm there. And I know Brother Hakey's helped out too. But the point is, there are some churches that, for whatever reason, all kinds of dynamics, and when, when someone like me just drops off the face of the earth for whatever reason, what do we do? Because a lot of those churches have hired me to just do everything. I mean, I've been in churches where I lead music, and I do bulletins, and that's all fine. I'll do those if you need me to. I'm okay with that. But if that's the regular thing, well then, gosh, you know, what, what are we doing? Right? And that's what I like about the book of Nehemiah. It starts with one man here. But from that one man, it's going to spread a vision, spread unity, spread uh, energy, a desire to rebuild, to shore up for the purpose of worshiping the one and only true God. That's what I like about the book of Nehemiah. So I'm going to read uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. If, if you can stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. 
Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. Now, if I slaughter one of these names that are in here, uh, you'll just have to blame my English teacher because I'm phonetically, uh, I, I pronounce everything phonetic. And so if I slaughter some of these names, you can correct me later, but just don't do it during the service or I'm going to be real embarrassed. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, <coughs> it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them, according to the Jews who escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. I'm inquiring about, what about our brothers? What about the ones that didn't get, you know, all that stuff? Then he says in verse 3, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the furthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling in my name. Of course, he's talking about Jerusalem. Verse 10. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. There's a remnant, right? And let your servant prosper this day. Let it be fulfilled. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the king, for I am the king's cupbearer. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come to you and we pray that as we, as we begin this book of Nehemiah, that your spirit will walk with us, illumine, illuminate uh, our hearts to understand, to grasp for our own correction, for our own direction, and to begin to create a sense of unity of, it may seem like small things, Father, like praying like Nehemiah did, just by himself. But he began to pray. 
And in that prayer, Father, we're going to see unfolded a vision of restoring the glory of God, of restoring a people that say they love God, but yet they were not acting like it at the time. And in that, he repented of his own sins and the sins of everybody else. He's truly humble. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. I've, I've entitled this, Nehemiah is planted in a pagan palace. I use that term because lots of times doing hospice work, uh, when I'm in a different facility, a different home, uh, visiting different people of all kinds of stripes, colors, flavors, however you want to describe them, they're just different people. And the only thing all these people that I've visited with over 17 years in the hospice world, the only thing they have in common is their doctor has told them that I'm going to give you a Medicare diagnosis of hospice eligibility. And they'll say, what does that mean, Dr. Smith? That means if you uh, have this disease and it takes its natural course, you will die in six months or less. That is the Medicare definition of, of a hospice eligibility. That's the only thing these people I would go to see have in common. They've been told that for sure because otherwise they wouldn't be signed up for hospice through their Medicare benefit or through their insurance or even some many times hospices take people that are younger or maybe uh, street people and put them on what they call charity hospice because we're required to have so much percentage charity because some people aren't old enough for Medicare, some people don't have insurance. Uh, the hospice I was at lately, and by the way, everything went good Wednesday all I had to do Wednesday is I went in there for what they call an IDG meeting, an interdisciplinary group meeting to talk about the patients that I had on my caseload so the other chaplain that's taken would know something about my patients. And then after that meeting, uh, it was 11.30, so we had an all-staff meeting. And your, your pastor made a joke at, at all-staff that everybody understood, Brian, but that's okay. My owner of my hospice mentioned something about cat and dog hospice and I thought oh, I'll just use my humor I, I said well Weston that would be great he goes well I don't want to do a cat and dog hospice I said hey we could make some money here I said cats have nine lives buddy he goes everybody just laughed and then he just rolled his eyes and he's about six foot five redhead and he goes that's your stinger chaplain Steve but um the point is is I had a good Wednesday but before the day was over they were announcing to everybody that didn't know other than just the administration the other two chaplains that I would be coming here full-time as of Sunday morning, so that was my last day. And the lady that was my immediate boss under social services, the chaplains and social work and volunteer coordinating, she, like I, I think I told you, she was actually a student in my Sunday school class after I got saved. And she came over to me, gave me this big old long warm hug, and I said, Stacy, I'm proud of you, how you know you really become a you know, very awesome woman, you're a social worker, you got this business and everything. And she says, well, I just want everybody to know, she said, he was my Sunday school teacher when I was in 10th grade, and, and he was 6 foot 2 and 165, and he had hair. She says, but I'm not going to tell you what he is now. I said, well, I'm not going to tell anybody either. I said, I ain't 6 foot 2 no more. But then she handed me a Logan's Roadhouse, and on that card, it said $100 for Steve and Karen. So they were very gracious. Now, they teased me a little bit. They said most of their chaplains that go off to a, to a pastor, they're back in a year and a half, he said, and he joked about it, I said, well, I, I don't plan on unless they I said, if I call you, it'll be a Monday morning after a, after a business meeting, I, but, but I told him later on, I said, hey, I appreciate that, he said, well, what I'm trying to say is, Steve, is the door's always open, I said, well, I appreciate that, Weston, I said, but that's not my plan, I said, now, 
We'll see what God does. But I had a good time Wednesday closing that up. And then the Sunday before, we had a Lord's Supper at uh, Midway, and they're, they're set on it. But they were people, the people in the hospice that I worked for, they understood vision, uh, your task, my role, your role. They stayed in their lane. They understood that. But the little church I left, it was like I just took the life out of them. Most understood, didn't they, Karen? Some were like, well, I just don't understand. God opened a door and it's providing for my family. I got to take care of my own household. And, and I tried to explain to him, but just some didn't understand. And, and maybe it's just because they loved me. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. But it was just sad that I had to leave there. But I left. I told him, I'm going to leave you with some tools. And you can call me if you have any, you know, need some advice. I said, but I can't be your pastor anymore. And so that was Sunday the 26th. Or, yeah. And then that Tuesday, when I was finishing up my hospice work, I went to visit one of my members that was at a facility. Uh, she had been put on another hospice, and I left a card. And of course, I just ministered presence and prayer because she was non-responsive. And then she passed away that afternoon, and her granddaughter called me. She said, yeah, Joanne, she was about 90, 91. She went home to be with well, us, okay. And then I got to preach, was it, was it Friday or Saturday? Saturday? Saturday, I got to do her funeral. And it was just such a joy. The little Joanne was just a little spitfire, wasn't she? Little lady. Someone might preach, or I would preach. She'd say, oh, that feller did good, you know. She was very down home. She was from Claremore. But I got to preach her funeral, and it was so encouraging because uh, there was uh, about six or eight from Midway over here, family over there, and it was just good. And I told the family, hey, if you need anything, i got a big set of ears. Just Lacey knows my number. So I love serving people. But... There they are without really any directions. So I gave them some directions. I said, I won't leave you an orphan. I'll give you tools. And, and so lots of times when we're reading this book of Nehemiah, <clears throat> Nehemiah will be doing something. There will be a tool that we can pick up as an individual, corporately, as families. One of the things I have learned over the years <clears throat> is as the, as the individual family goes, so goes the church. So I believe in ministering to the family. Whether that's a couple or a single person, that's a family, right? So I believe in ministering to the family because your needs might be totally different than their needs, whatever that need is. And it's not like you're needy. It's just you might have a different need from me than the other family or the other person. And so I believe that as the family goes, so goes the church. And the healthier I can make your home with, with my involvement or sometimes backing off, you know, letting you do your thing, the healthier I think the body of Christ will be because all of a sudden, because I've been in your home and your home and your home and your life and your life, your life, that way when I'm standing up here, you're thinking of one thing that I've been involved with you, you're thinking of another thing. And all of a sudden we have a sense of unity, a sense of belonging. I'm not just up here in a dog and pony show doing a rooster walk, preaching the word to you and go, woo, we got a, got a superstar, we got a rock star. And then when I go home and I know that or wherever else I live, you're like, I just never see him. I don't know where he's at. I don't know where he's at. I don't know. I want to be involved in your lives. And we'll see this in Nehemiah. It starts with him. But pretty soon, he's involved with different people that have different skills, families, whether it's arming one another or protecting one another, building. He's helping them figure out those things. He's creating unity. So in verse 1 through 4, as Nehemiah is planted, 
in a pagan palace. And my point was, is doing hospice, doing little churches, doing bigger churches, I figured out a long time ago, I'm going to bloom wherever God plants me. And I was telling the trustee committee, I said, hey, I can roll with the punches. I can work with what I have. We may change some things. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not the, the kind of person that just catalysts any kind of change. I work with whatever I have. Because I know Karen has for over 37 years. So, amen. She'll say amen to that. And um, trust me, I was very raw material. And, and she's made me so refined. But uh, I preached my first sermon. I used the word irregardless. And she was at my first sermon. We're eating lunch later on that day, David. And, uh, of course, she's more educated than me. And she, she, goes, she, eating, she goes, Steve, I noticed when you were preaching, you used the word irregardless. I said, yes, I did. And I'm eating my little Goatee's burger. She goes, there's no such word as irregardless. And I paused for a moment at age 24. And I took another bite of my hamburger. And I said, well, I guess I'll say it irregardless. And she says, regardless is the word. So, so sometimes, you know, you need a little re refining, right? But in verse 1 through 4, as Nehemiah is planted in this pagan palace, of all places, he's in a pagan palace. But you know what? He's the cupbearer. He's trusted by this pagan king that doesn't believe in his God, maybe doesn't even know his God exists. He's in that trusted spot. He's planted in a pagan palace. In verse 1 through 3, in that palace where he is planted, God moves the heart of Nehemiah to care. God moves in the heart of Nehemiah to care. Look at verse 1 through 4 with me again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, which, by the way, that's the only time you hear about what his dad's name is. So it doesn't mean he's insignificant. He's never mentioned before, but yet look all what Nehemiah does over a 20-plus year span. The son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, and I was in Shushan, the citadel, that's like a palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who have left from the captivity of the providence are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down. You know, the place that we live, we worship, it's all broken down. And its gates are burned with fire. They're, you know, they're rendered useless. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. There's Nehemiah in this, in this captivity at this time where Jerusalem was laid to waste. And there he was planted right there in that palace in a trusted spot. And when a credible resource came in to give him a report about what's going on with God's people, he asks and they give him a report that breaks his heart. The first thing I mentioned, uh, Hakaliah, that's the only time they mention Nehemiah's dad. Nehemiah's dad must have done something right. Because Nehemiah loved God. He loved God's people. He was working with what he had in the palace. And he liked to pray to God because he cared about God's glory. So 
whoever this Hekeliah was when we see him in heaven, said, dude, I read your name once in the Bible. He'll go, yeah, I know. I know. Ezra wrote it about Nehemiah. But he must have been a pretty good dad and mom to raise him, to work with what he had, and to have a concern about the glory of God and God's people. That's just an observation. But God, in this situation, when he plants him there, he moves the heart of Nehemiah to care. He, he hears some information about the conditions of God's people. It's said there that, they, uh, that these people are in great distress and they're a reproach. That means people don't like them. People think something's wrong with them. You know, when it says there in 1 Timothy 3 that a pastor is to be beyond reproach. You know what that implies? That he may be accused of some stuff, but it better not stick. It better not stick, because if it does, then you've got to go 1 Timothy 5, like we talked about, and, and Matthew 18, and walk through a process, because maybe he's just making a mistake. Who knows? But, but it says they're in reproach. They're in reproach. You know why they're in reproach? Because they said they loved God, but yet they were serving idols that were building uh, things outside their house that worship other idols and other gods. And they were marrying people that, that were not godly people and, and they were compromising. And therefore, they were approached because they're an embarrassment not only to the nation Israel, but even to the nations around them. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a reproach. And now we've taken over you. Where's your God now? There was the approach. The reproach they're giving. And there they are in distress because they're in a situation where even if you thought, well, if you want to believe in your God of Israel, that's okay. But it was a culture that said, you know what? We don't want to believe in that one and true God. And you deserve what you got, your approach. I ain't going to help you. They were in distress. Because the walls of their city where they worshiped God were crumbled. The gates were burned where people would come in and come out to worship the one and only true God. This information of the conditions came providentially, not only on this day, that it happened to come, but it came through the mouth of a credible witness that when Nehemiah asked, providentially, God made sure it was one of his relatives that he would say, you know what, he's got some credibility. He's not an extremist. He doesn't exaggerate stuff. He's just going to tell it like it is. This information of the condition of the people of God came providentially through his cousin, and therefore it had credibility. This information had credibility and this information of the conditions came providentially credibi with credibility, but also that information was very effective because God used it providentially through his cousin to tell him what was going on, and it caused an effect on Nehemiah. Nehemiah could have stood there and said, well, I'm a cupbearer. I'm trusted by this king. Unless I do something real stupid, I'm pretty set in life. I'm going to take care of my family. But I'm sorry, cousin, that's happening over there. Instead, it caused him to have an effect. It caused him to care outside of his own little fishbowl what was happening with God's people and God's glory. I trained a chaplain one time who had been licensed, ordained. Uh, that's what you've got to at least have if you're going to be in hospice. That's just Medicare federal rules, but this person was ordained and licensed in like two weeks. I was told, I walked into a hospice one day, I've been working there about, what, three months and prior, and uh, I walked in, and the boss said, come to my office, I'm the executive director, yes, ma'am. Um, 
when we closed our Oklahoma City office, we were Medicare cap issues, so we don't have enough money. To, I hired one too many people, and that's you, Steve. But yet I'm going to get this volunteer director over here in Tulsa to get license ordained next week through her church, no process, and you're going to train her for two weeks, then I'll put you down as a, in good standing in case you ever need a job again. So I thought, okay, I'm going to train her. I'm not, going to train her, I'm not just going to train her how to call you, how to find your address, which is all logistics, and she didn't know how to do that either, or how to organize it. She thought you got to see everybody alphabetical order. I knew a chaplain like that one time that saw everybody alphabetical order, you know, from Abel family to the Wilson family, right? Well, that's great because the Abel family lives in Stillwell, Ken, and then the Brown family lives in Claremore. Oh, they're going to get some miles today, you know, because you get paid miles for that. But I, I told her, no, you don't go alphabetical. You go by region. Like there may be in Pryor, there may be in Claremore, and a, that's your Wassa day, and then that's your Tulsa day. And, and you know, I had to help her with that. But one of the things I did is I gave her some philosophical, um, I guess, advice. And I said, look, I said, I know you love the Lord. We've talked about that. I noticed she was born again. She knew I was born again. I said, now you listen. The state doesn't pay you. The state is not going to pay you to go proselytize. I'm not saying don't tell people about Jesus. I said, but if you're putting in your documentation, I told them about Jesus and came to, told them to come to Jesus. I said, you're going to get in a lot of trouble in the state. I said, so, and I said, plus, you don't know what home you're going to walk into. It's like a new missionary field, right? Because I knock on a door of a facility room, and as I'm walking there, if I see a cross on the wall or a picture of Jesus on the wall or a Bible sitting over there, I know I might be in a good place where I might be able to drop a few questions here other than your preference, right? But if I walk in your house, there's a hole in your porch, there's roosters back in the kitchen, and you're offering me a dirty straw to drink out of, no, no ma'am, no ma'am. You're just trying to figure out how to keep clean and get out the bed bugs. You're just trying to, I said, listen, when you walk into a home or facility, I said, nobody cares what you know until they know you care. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, you and I know Jesus. I said, we know this is the final authority, that, that he's the truth, the way, and the life. And I said, and that's good information. We, we get, uh, Praise God and by the grace of God. We know that. I said, but when you walk in that room, if you walk in there and start, to start thumping them overhead with the Bible and pushing things on them, I said, they may just kick you out. I said, so you're going to have to walk in there and figure out how to show them that you care. Then they'll care about what you know, what you have to say. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, and at that time, I pastored a church too. I said, at my church at 11 o'clock, we have worship service. And I said, and if you come to my church, I'm assuming you want to hear what I have to say, like y'all are here tonight. You want to hear what I have to say, right? That's why you're here, right? Because that's the setting we're in. You've come to worship, and you want your pastor to come to the Word of God and feed you. You expect me to do that. However, when I'm a hospice and I walk into your house, I didn't come there for them to hear me preach a sermon. That's how she was going to approach it. I said, don't do that. I said, number one, you'll get in trouble with the state. I said, number two, you'll probably get kicked out. You'll have a lot of declined patients. You won't have any frequencies, and you won't get any miles, and pretty soon they'll fire you. Nehemiah probably knows a lot of stuff. We'll figure that out. But you know what? The first thing we learn about Nehemiah, more than what Nehemiah is going to learn to unite and, and give a direction and everything. The first thing we find out about Nehemiah is he really cares. And knowing that he has that pastoral, that shepherding, that compassionate heart about God's glory, about God's people, that tells you something about Nehemiah. 
he's not so much concerned at this moment to share with God's people what he knows. He's more concerned about coming to God and saying, God, I really care about what's going on here. I've been given some information providentially. You have put them in my path on this day. It's credibility. It is information that has affected me, has deeply affected me. And therefore, at that specific time when he heard this information, at that time when he heard it from a family member, he was motivated at that time to pray. He didn't get hasty, did he? Now, you and I know that if, if the walls of Jerusalem are down, they need to be rebuilt because that's where they worship God, right? But he didn't get hasty. He didn't put the cart before the horse. The first thing he did is he prayed because he cared. Many times as a hospice chaplain or as a pastor, I may not know a family very well, and I just kind of got to go in there and be myself, figure out where they're at, and just pray, Lord, Maybe I won't do something this time, but what do I do next time to minister to him? You've got to be led of the Spirit. But God moves the heart of Nehemiah to care first and foremost. That's why God planted him there in that pagan palace, ultimately, is to move in his heart through this situation to cause him to care. Secondly, in verse 5 through 9, God not only moves the heart of Nehemiah to care, but God moves the heart of Nehemiah to humility. He not only cares, but he's humble. Look at verse 5 through 9. And I said, that is when I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven, verse 5, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. He didn't blame anybody else but himself include himself. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word which you commanded your servant Moses. What was that word? If you are unfaithful people, he says, I will scatter you among the nations. God gave him a warning. But you said also, God, but you also said, return to me and I'll keep and keep my commandments and do them. Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, I'll gather you again from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He moves Nehemiah to care, and then from that caring mode for God's glory and God's people, he leads Nehemiah to a place of humility this information of the conditions that was providential, credible, and effective, that information led him before God's presence. It led him to his knees, and it said he did it day and night. Now, I don't know if that means 24-7. That just means probably during the day and at night, outside of cupbearing and everything. He took time to pray to God, to beseech God, 
to intercede for God's glory and God's people. This information led him before God's presence. This information led him to beseeching God for forgiveness, not only for what the people of God had done. He said, even my house, we've all sinned against you. He didn't say, well, some of them did this and some of them did that, but my family didn't. No, he just said, look, we've all broken our part. We have sinned against you, God. Even my house has sinned against you. That is a very humble position to be. And that information led him before God to beseech God for forgiveness for himself and others. And then that information led him to reflect on God's standard. Because he said, God, remember this, what you told Moses. We've broken the commandments. We've broken the statutes. We've broken all the ordinances. We're guilty. And even my house and myself, I am guilty. But God, do not forget what you said, the standard. You said this would happen if we disobeyed. But you also told Moses, if we would return to you, you would gather us again. You would restore your glory in us. So this information moved him to humility to come before God, to confess even his own sin before God, and it led him back to the standard, the standard of what God said, not just what Nehemiah thinks, not just what everybody else thinks, not what the world thinks, but he brought it back. It led him to a place of reflecting God's standard. You obey me, this is what will happen. You disobey, this is what will happen. He brought it back to the standard. And guess what? He didn't blame God about all that, did he? He just said, God, you told us. That's the standard. He reflected and brought himself back to a standard. Why is he doing that? Well, listen, he's fixing to lead God's people back to Jerusalem, paid for by a pagan king, and if he don't have a standard direction, right, on how to do it, well, guess what? Israel will just be back in the same shape because we know historically they have. But the point is, he's building this vision correctly. There's a standard. If we're going to do something, we're going to do it God's way, right? If we're going to do something, we're going to do it right. I remember when I worked at Ramsey Winch, I was a janitor, and I became a steel fabricator. And they have these little signs up there, uh, you know, measure twice, cut once. If you're going to do it right, do it right the first time. Just like that. Otherwise, you're going to do it the second time right. All these little slogans. Well, you know what? He's reflecting on the standards so that as he begins to beseech God for his glory and the forgiveness of God's people, he says, the reason we need forgiveness is because we've broken your standard. But your standard is not only we need to repent and maybe we deserve what we got, but your standard is if we do return to you, you'll restore us. And he's not reminding God of anything because God has forgotten. He's reflected on himself and he's, he's letting himself know and God know, I know what your standard is. It's not that you've forgotten God, but I'm reminding you that I know what your standard is. He's moved to humility. He's moved to care. And in that caring, that compassion, in that humility before God, then in verse 10 through 11, God moves the heart of Nehemiah to trust. He sees the desolation of God's people. That moves him to care. And in that care, he gets real humble. He not only repents for their sins, but his sins. And he holds himself up to God's standard, because that's the standard. And then God moves him to trust. Look at verse 10 
through 11. Now these are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear you. That's the remnant, right? Because not all of Israel was what? Israel. Just like not all the churches, we would say, is the church. There's a remnant. True believers, not wheat and tares. Oh, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of, the, of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. Let me be successful, I pray, and grant him mercy, grant me mercy in the, in the sight of this man. What man? For I am the king's cupbearer in, in, in the presence of this king. Nehemiah was moved to care. Nehemiah was moved to humility, and that led to repentance and coming back to God's standard. And now, Nehemiah, now that he's confessed his own sin, now that he's, he's beseeched God for his concern, he says, you know what, I'm going to trust you. I've reminded you what your standard is. If we disobey, we're scattered. If we obey, you'll pull us back together. So I'm going to trust you at your word, God. And he says, so, he says, only you can deliver like you did in the past. He's referring to the times perhaps when Joseph in slavery and all that ended up in Egypt, became high to save nations. And he's also referring to the time perhaps maybe when Moses was spared his life only to raise up and what? Deliver Israel out of the slavery of Egypt. He says, God, he says, your servants and your people, you have redeemed them by great power and your strong hand. He's referring to the past. He said, that's your character. That's who you are. That's what you do. And he says, I'm moved to trust you because I trust you because you delivered us like in the past you've delivered us. Why couldn't you deliver us now in spite of our disobedience? And he says, I'm not only moved to trust you that you can deliver us like you did in the past, but I believe and trust in you that you hear me even now in our current situation. I believe you hear me. Be attentive. Have your eyeballs on this, God. Be involved. He begins to trust God not only because God has a reputation of the past, a God of character. He says, and I believe you're the same God now. I believe you see our situation now. So I believe you can hear me. I believe you can deliver us. And I believe, I trust, that you will act in this current situation. Maybe not like you did in Egypt. Maybe not like you did over here. Maybe not like you did at the Battle of Jericho. But God, I know you've done it in the past. I believe you hear me now. And I believe you're going to act in our current situation. Because he went on to say this. O oh Lord, please let your ear be attentive in prayer for your servant. Prayers of your servants that desire your name. Let your servant prosper. I believe you can do it now. You're going to make me successful as I go before this pagan king. As nothing more than a trusted cupbearer. He's going to go to that king somehow, some way. He doesn't know how it's going to happen yet. All he's saying is, God, go before me. Prepare a path of mercy for me as I go to this king. Because listen, in that day... You know what would have happened if the king didn't want me entertaining him, whether I was a cupbearer, trusted or not. 
He could just say, you know what? You really bore me off with his head. Go hang him on a cross or something like that. So he's asking God for mercy. He says, I know you're going to act in this specific situation just for me. You're going to hear me. Because he's displaying to God that although he's just as guilty as everybody else in the house of Israel, he says, I know what your standard is. You, your standard is, is if I return to you like I'm showing you, you're going to restore us. He says, I know your standard. God not only delivered out of Egypt, God not only sees our judgment that we're living in now, God will move to be our restorer. Nehemiah saw his hope in God for his people. Nehemiah saw God as his help. The Bible says God is a very present time, or the very present help in a time of need. And lots of times I would use that verse out of the book of Psalms to one of my patients who was in a very great need at that moment. It might have been because they had a pain issue or there's family dynamics that aren't quite closing up like they want it to and they know they're going to die at any time. I say, hey, God's a very present help in your time of need. Let's go to the Lord. And it doesn't mean that that kid came and said, hey, I love you, Mama. That kid may just still be estranged, but that God was a help to that person at that time of need. They knew their conscience was clear. Well, listen, as God moves in Nehemiah, <clears throat> he's planted him there in a pagan palace. He's given him credible information that has moved him to care, moved him to humility, and moved him to trust God. God, you did it in the past. You can do it now. God, I know you hear us in our immediate situation. Even though we deserve this judgment, you hear me, and I believe you're going to act on my behalf. Show me mercy. Because I'm nothing more than a cupbearer before this king. It's implying I'm going to talk to the king about this. Now listen, that means this guy's going to ask some time off. He's going to ask a tyrant king, hey, can you give me some time off? Because my people are having some trouble. We'll see that in the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to watch God even use a wicked king. You know, the book of Psalms says, even the wicked had their hire from God. And so when we see evil in this world... Don't be so overwhelmed by it because God may be using that for something greater going on. Uh, uh, some of you all asked today, have we heard from Joey? Not since July 15th. But Karen checks his finances and his pay scale's gone up every two weeks. So he was already in hazard pay when he went there. He's probably in combat pay. I don't know what he's doing. He may just still be guarding Camp Lemonier with his little cat Barbus that he found there in Africa. I don't know. But I'm not concerned, really. I miss him. I talk about Joey all the time, don't I? I miss that young man. But I'm not scared for him. You know why? Because I know God's with him. I know God has led him there. He volunteered to deploy because, number one, he needed to in six years. But he wanted to go. And he didn't want to just go to, I don't know, some other state and help out the, the Army Guard. He wanted to go overseas. First time I've ever been overseas. I think the first time he ever flew is when he went to basic camp, Fort Jackson. We didn't fly a lot being married. But you know, when you think about Nehemiah, he cares about God's people. He cares about the glory and reputation of God so much that he's willing to confess his own sins and repent. And then he's going to trust God's 
character, that he's been there in the past to deliver us when we didn't deserve it, he'll do it now. For a people that will desire him, for a remnant will say, we're sorry, we're wrong, please help us. And so we begin to see Nehemiah planted in this pagan palace, and he's planted there in that pagan palace to bloom, as I said earlier, to bloom there as God's prayerful and restorative influence, to influence restoration based off God's promise, God's power to unite God's people. That is, those who will desire God. He's there to unite them through God's promise and God's power. Because listen, Nehemiah ain't going to be able to do it all either, is he? If you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, I mean, they're all busy. Matter of fact, for a while, he's gone. I was telling Karen the other day, I was reading part of Nehemiah. He'd been gone for about 20 years in this book. And then he shows back up. They're already marrying non-believers and everything. He doesn't just get onto them. He just begins to pull their hair out because they're marrying non-believers. He said, he's serious about the standard of God, isn't he? Now, that doesn't mean if you have a child that marries a pagan or something, I'm not going to pull their hair out. I'll just say, hey, I can't do your wedding. I'm sorry. And you can just go down to the justice of peace. But, hey, we're here to support you, but I can't do it. Because it would violate my conscience. It would violate God's principles to put a blessing on that. And that would be a tough decision because, listen, you pay my salary, you might say, okay, fine. Yeah. You know, start voting with the purse string. But, you know, you've got to do what's right. And that's all Nehemiah is going to be doing. He's already reflected on God's standard. And he wants to do it God's way for God's glory, for the good of God's people. Like Nehemiah as a church or as believers, like Nehemiah, we find ourselves in a nation that bases everything off man-centeredness, selfishness, temporary world culture. And when we're in this culture full of information, we need to find some credible resources from here, from one another, what's really going on in the world. Because this, if we don't, we will either get swept up in that world, every wind of doctrine, or we'll just be crazy. God has put us here on this earth not to try to be the light, not to try to be salt. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. He said, we are. He didn't say we need to be. We are the light. We are the salt. A light influences. I mean, if, if, uh, if we shut every shade here and turned off every light, it would be pitch dark, right? I mean, it would be pitch dark in here. Pitch dark, you'd be, Where, where's Steve? But if all I have is this little LED light, right now it's kind of effective. I mean, I can, I can kind of see it. It's a pretty cool little you know, pocket knife right? or pocket light, right? But if every light went out, guess how effective this light would be then? Not only would it be leading all of us, but it, you could see its effect. Well, sometimes God plants you somewhere real dark. He plants you somewhere that's real pagan, somewhere that is godless. And you are the light to influence that community, that culture. He said, Jesus said, we're the salt of the earth. Well, what does salt do? Salt influences and seasons whatever you put it on, right? Not only for preservative, but also taste. And when you're living in the same world as your, as your lost friends, 
and they see things happening with Israel and Hamas, or they know your son's over there or your daughter's over there, or they find out something else evil happens in this world, and they, they know that it bothers you just as much as it does them, but you kind of carry a different way of thinking about those things because you know who's in control. It doesn't mean bad things won't happen, but you know who's in control. All of a sudden they go, well, well why do you believe that, Deborah? Well, I can tell you why I have joy even though that's happening. All of a sudden you become that seeding salt to show them joy, peace, direction when they don't have it. They don't know where to get it. You become that salt that seasons the culture, seasons your community. We are light and we are the salt. So someone says, well, then how does that flesh itself out when you're trying to create a vision or create a direction for our church? This is how I I illustrate it. Okay? See my little finger? I'm going to do something real weird. And you stick it to the wind, right? And with that wind, we find out where the culture is going, what the culture is like. It doesn't mean we're going to follow the wind. Don't, Don't do that. But that way we can discern the culture around us, whether it's at work or the culture in general. We need to be able to discern. We need some credible information to understand the culture around us. And with that information that we use discerningly, then from there, once we understand the culture, the demographics, and I'm not talking about getting real logistic, just we understand the culture around us, in the, around this church and what we're doing. Once you understand that culture, then... Now we know what the culture is doing right now, at least currently, right? Then we put our finger on the pulse of the church. And we sit there and say, okay, here's some resources we have. Oh, there's some gifts that we have. Oh, there's some ta- oh, I'm getting a pulse. Oh, there's some talent over here. Oh, there's a desire for something. We put a finger on the pulse of the church. We've seen where the culture is going. We understand it, how we can best engage it because now we know how we're resourced financially, time-wise, talents, gifts, desires. And then once we've established this, understanding this, then we take those gifts, those talents, those resources, and we engage that culture that we have some kind of understanding and bearing on, and we put our hands to the plow, and we plow straight, we plow faithful, We plow patiently and we watch God bring the results because when it happens that way, who gets the glory? He does. Because all we've done is we say, okay, that's kind of the world around us. Okay, yeah, that's trendy. Okay, yeah, we kind of know where we're at and we know where we stand with all this, you know, the standard. We know how we're resourced. Okay, let's take these resources, whether it's collectively at a time or individually. We, we help resource people and get them so that when you go out there on that plow, you're just walking, walking straight. My dad told me when he was growing up in Missouri that they didn't have a tractor for a long time. Of course, my dad was born in 1938 there in California, moved back to Missouri after World War II. So he, and they moved back there where there's no running water, there's outhouse, no electricity. He moved from California, and he said he grieved for being a seven-year-old. But he said he went from there, where his dad was working on a farm in Visea, California, to Missouri to help great, my great-grandpa run the farm. Well, my great-grandfather, he said, we don't need no tractor. I got a mule. So my dad there at eight or, eight or ten, you know, he's learned how to plow the mule. And he told me one time, this was towards his end of his life, we're just sitting there in the nursing home, talking, and he never really talked much about that part of his childhood other than just fun stuff. But he said, that was the hardest thing I ever did, Steve, 
He said, because my grandpa was particular about his plowing, even though he didn't want the one going to do it. You know, he got you to do it. And he said, if, if anything was crooked, if I didn't go to that tree and turn around, he said, I had to do it all over again. I said, well, why did you? Because I'm thinking of the little city boy. I said, well, why'd you do it, Dad? Just tell Grandpa to take care of it. Uh-huh, you don't do that. He said, you just plow again. You, you're patient. And he said, then pretty soon you learn what Grandpa likes, my great-grandpa. And then through that, you just continue to plow straight, son. And behind him was great, my great-grandpa throwing seeds. And you know what? After that field was all plowed, whatever they were growing, I don't know what he grew. I know they didn't grow corn or anything. <clears throat> but they would come back and check that field every once in a while. But they didn't worry about that field. You know why? Because it was already plowed straight. It was already planted. They trusted God for the rain. They trusted God for the sunshine to germinate that seed. And whatever came up that year, that's what came up. And it's the same way with the church. Jesus talks about throwing seed on different soil. <clears throat> and you just throw it. Back then, they just threw it. I mean, they didn't plow it out, just threw it. And if it came up, it was good ground. If it didn't, it wasn't good ground. But when it bared fruit, it bared 30, 40, 60 fold. What we're going to do as a church, we're going to figure out what is going on in the culture. Sometimes it'll be through discussion, sometimes investigation. We'll figure out what's trendy out there just so we kind of know what's going on in the church and everything. That's all fine and dandy, but we're not going to worry about it. We just kind of understand it, how we can engage it through our resources, gifts, talents, time, desires. And then we're just going to put our hands to the plow and go do it and lead the results to God. So if you wanted a little vision statement, it's going to be something like that. If you wanted an illustration, that's what it's going to be like. So when we think of Nehemiah, he all starts, he starts first of all with some good information, and that causes him to care. I believe y'all care about this community, or you wouldn't have asked me to be your pastor, okay? And, and I don't think Karen and I would have said, yeah, we'll come here, if we didn't think you didn't care. And by the way, you've spoiled us rotten already, we know you definitely care about us, and we appreciate it very much. Not that anybody else has never done that. But he moved Nehemiah to care. And in that care, he didn't just feel bad about what's going on in the world, he got down on his knees and he began to confess his own sin, the sin of others. He didn't blame anybody. And then he reminded God, I know what the standard is, and we violated it, but you also tell us if we return, you'll help us. So therefore, Nehemiah learned to trust God even in a pagan palace before a tyrant, a tyrannical king. He's going to approach that king. He didn't know when. He didn't know how, and we'll see here in a little bit how God even providentially arranges that. And we're going to see things in the future days in our church where God's going to do something. It, it, it may be a calendar thing. It may be whatever it is, but God's going to providentially move. We're going, oh, wow. What, did you see that? Yeah, I saw that. How did God do that? I don't know. All we know is God did it, and we're just going to give God the glory. And, of course, we're going to benefit from the good of it. Well, what about non-believers? I always like to challenge the believer and the non-believer because that's the only two kind of people I'm talking to. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. I mean, that's just how it is. And you're either lost or saved. Well, like Nehemiah, 
the world uses all kinds of sources for their information. The, the world uses sensual information. The world uses spiritual. I've had people tell me, oh, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. Well, what does that mean? You contemplate your navel. I mean, what does that mean? You know, I don't know. You're spiritual, you know. Ooh, you know, scary. But I'm, they, they use sensual, spiritual. Uh, Karen and I have seen a couple of posts by some relatives that are very philosophical. They're very spiritual. But yet, if we really looked at it long enough, we could just tear it apart with the Word of God because they're just trying to feel better about life and be philosophical. Therefore, it makes them look important and it becomes very narcissistic. But you know, a world uh, bases their information off of sensuality, emotions, artificial not intelligence, but just artificial rhetoric. Their information that they get gives them direction. Now, when I was lost, I'll tell you where I got my information off KMOD 97.5. It might have been Ted Nugent. It might have been you know, all these things. That's where I got my information because that's what I listened to religiously. That's where I got my direction, how I treated women or whatever. But you know what? When that changed, all of a sudden I said, oh, I've got to change my information station. Not only how to treat women, but how to live. Well, the world gets their information from all kinds of sources. And because they come from all kinds of sources, this is the kind of direction they get. They might say with their direction that they get in life, they might say, well, I'm okay, you're okay. Whatever you want to believe, and whatever I want to believe. That's, that's their philosophy based off the information they get. But yet the Bible tells us that we're not all okay. And you're not okay. We're all sinners, and we've, we've come short of God's glory. We, 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 we are guilty. Uh, we're bound to sin. But yet the world, some of their information would kind of tell you, well, I'm okay, you're okay. But yet God says, no, you're not. There's a standard, and you violated this standard. So you're not okay. You have a great need, Steve. The world might say, well, and I've heard this before in the hospice world, don't you judge me. And, of course, they'll want to quote, Matthew 7, 1, right? Judge not lest you be judged. I said, well, yes, that's what Jesus said. And later on he says, but yet you'll know them by their fruits. And when he's talking about judging, he says, if you are going to judge somebody by some standard, you better be living it yourself, you know? Otherwise, you're just knocking them in the head with a two-before off your face. And So he doesn't say there ain't no place for judge or making a judgment, discriminating right and wrong. But that's what they'll say. Or maybe their philosophy, their information says, well, just follow your heart. Well, for 21 years, Steve Holstein followed his heart. I was a class clown of 1980. I was successful in cross country. I had a 3.8 grade point average at Botech. I jobbed out of Botech my senior year, making twice minimum wage. I got a job at Ramsey Winch because I could read a blueprint. I was very successful living at home, making Six dollars an hour in 1981, that's pretty good money. As a janitor in an industrial shop, I was successful, but yet because I lived by my heart for 21 years, as I told you this morning, I thought life wasn't worth living after 21 years. Everybody liked me, Kim. Everybody laughed at my stupid jokes. Everybody liked me, but yet after 21 years of the information where I was getting it, led me to that path because I was listening to my heart. Do what Steve wants to do. The Bible says, well, you probably don't want to listen to your heart because your heart is desperately wicked. It's full of simple thoughts, simple attitudes, uh, confused ideas about God, gender, whatever else it may be. Your mind's 
clouded with those tainted, corrupted things. Or the world through their, through their information site. Well, religion is just a crutch for the weak people. Well, I always look at somebody when they tell me that. I'll say, you're absolutely right. They go, what do you mean? I say, well, the Bible says we are weak. We are weak and dead in our sin. And unless you come to Jesus, you'll not have life. So on one hand, they were right, but yet they weren't quite focused. Well, what is, what is God saying to a lost person? He's saying... He's not trying to tell them that they're wrong in their philosophy. He's saying, you're going to the wrong source. Not only God's word, but he needs to hear, they need to hear us speak of what we've seen and heard and know to be true too. And therefore, maybe we have some credibility with them, and then maybe they will dig into this book. Because anybody that I've ever been able to, for like words, lead to the Lord, that's where it started is just a conversation about how God changed my life. Lord, well, that happened right here. Oh, really? Because I showed them the standard. It wasn't just Steve's opinion. It wasn't just Steve's experience. So lost people, uh, the pastor that ordained me, he made a comment during my ordination service. He said, Steve, he said, as a pastor, he said, listen, everybody has the right to be wrong. He said, I don't say that arrogantly, arrogantly as if we know everything. He said, but some people just have the right to be wrong. And you may have to just let them be wrong. And what I mean by that is as a hospice chaplain, I'm talking about very eternal, intimate things on a regular basis. And sometimes they just do not want our God. They do not want Jesus. And it's heartbreaking. But you know what? i got to say, you know what? I've done all I can do outside of prayer because the Spirit of God can do things that I can't. So i got to leave it at that. So the point is this, is if a lost person wants to reject God, Best case scenario, I wish they would reject God based off good information. That way, at least we could say, well, you willfully rejected truth versus ignorantly walked in your own truth and then you walk into utter darkness going, what in the world just happened here? That'd be worst case scenario. Hopefully, they're going to come to this truth. But listen, a lost person has the right to be lost if that's what they want to do. Forced religion serves nobody but the person forcing the religion on them. So when a lost person has bad information, they have bad direction. Therefore, I believe it's important that when we're here, especially when we're here under God's word, what we believe, what we say we believe will affect how we behave. And how we behave begins to define or form, at least to the people on the outside, who we become before them. So although I'm not going to be the doctor and police, and the, you know, but you know, we, we want to be as accurate as we can. That way it's going to affect how we behave and therefore how, what we become. And I think the text is pretty clear today. Nehemiah showed some care. He cared about what was happening. He humbled himself, and then he trusted God where God was going to take him next in this journey of restoring God's glory and restoring God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we pray that as we continue to meet on Sundays and Wednesdays or any other time, whether it's over a chicken fried steak or a coffee or 
a simple Bible reading together, letting iron sharpen iron, or it's somewhere else social. I pray that everything that we do together as a church, couples, individuals, and as families, it will revolve around caring for other people, especially lost people, Father. Because we must understand they're blinded by the God of this world. They, they can't change anything until God opens their eyes and until we throw faithful seed their way. They're lost and they're bound to their lostness. May we show care and concern. May we at times, whether we be a collective church or individually, that we examine our own hearts in the midst of this caring begin to pray that you would deliver us from whatever situation we see our in, not because we deserve it, but because without you as our help and our hope, we'll just remain in that desolate, broken down condition. And then, Father, you would lead us to trust you to do perhaps something very brave, something that might seem risky, like Nehemiah, who's going to talk to a pagan king about his God and his people. But he doesn't even know when that conversation is going to happen. But he's trusting God to show him mercy when it does. Help us to be a people that truly care, humble ourselves, and trust you. It's so easy, Father, in the American experience to just do what's convenient. Do what's safe. Do what comes out of the box that we bought to do as ministry. To keep the status quo. Live off just tradition versus tradition that might have meaning. It's so easy to do that here in America because, Father, we still have a constitution that says we have freedom of speech. The Constitution is not broke. It's corrupt men and women that have imposed on it, has twisted it, and distorted it through their own simple behaviors. Father, we still have freedom here in our country. And we thank you for it. So I pray, Father, as we walk out of these four walls, step into tomorrow, that you help us to find someone or something to care about to humble ourselves and then say, God, I'd like to do something about it. I don't know what it's going to look like. Will you lead me? Will you protect me? And as I said, Father, sometimes it's going to be risky. Other times, someone's just going to be totally receptive as Nehemiah is going to find out. Because you move in the hearts of kings like you move the waters of the rivers, Proverbs 21.1. The Bible tells us, Father, in Proverbs 16, Verse 1 and 9, that man makes his plans, but yet every step is ordered of the Lord. Every decision is of the Lord. So, Father, as a church, we're going to make plans. We're going to try to be strategic, discerning, and we're going to trust you to lead our steps, and we're going to trust you for the results. And we're going to ask that there might be people that don't even know you. It might be people of authority. It may be people that are considered common folk, but we're going to pray that you move in their hearts to show us favor. Favor 
for the context that we're doing something for your glory, that we're doing something for their good. Lead us, Father, as the great shepherd, even if it is the valley of the shadow of death. Lead us before our enemies with victory. Anoint our head with oil and let the wine cup run over. Because, Father, wherever we go, goodness and mercy is going to follow us because the Lord is our shepherd. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.